Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Toe to Toe, was the last main stage show of Season 5. It was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in May 2018. And after you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to our special guest, Aaron Whiting, the executive director of Parallel 45 Theater, speak with me about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Karen Killian tells the story of when she had to go toe-to-toe with a landlady in Peru. Hi, everyone. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Peru. Um, My husband and I actually joined the Peace Corps together after we had been married four years. So I was 28 when we moved to Peru, and he was 30. So in the grand scheme of Peace Corps volunteers, at least in the cohort we were in, we were the ancient old couple. I was washed up at 28, and it was the first time in my life I had ever been the oldest person in the room, and it was totally startling. And when you begin the Peace Corps experience, you spend the first three months in a very intense training period. Um, And it was like going through high school again, except, of course, I was six or seven years older than everybody and married. Um, And it's like being in high school because you have to be in classes all day from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and you're locked into the training compound. And you're also staying with a family. So um, that means that after being married for four years and living on my own for more than a decade, I was living with mom and dad again, except they weren't my mom and dad. It was a very nice Peruvian mom and dad who did things for me that my own mother never did. Hand wash all of my clothes and cook every single one of my meals. And Um, Every day at noon, they would unlock the gates, these big metal gates in this training compound, and there would be a line of nice little Peruvian mothers standing outside with bento boxes in their hands because they would hand deliver us hot lunch, which was lovely. My host mom in our first training was lovely. Her name is Irma. She was maybe one of the most loving and caring people I've ever known in my life, but I found it oppressive to be loved so deeply in a foreign country and just have no space for my marriage and my entire existence. Also, because we were in this intense training experience um, in this high school-like area, that meant we had this kind of high school-like social thing going on in the training. Um, we were just with all of these younger people all the time, and we couldn't get away with that, from them. And so Matt and I were trying very hard to be seen as individuals, um, and we did everything separately. So all this led to the fact that when it came time to finally graduate and move out into a village where we would spend our Peace Corps time, we asked for two things. We asked for the most independent living arrangement that was possible under the security guidelines. We were part of the first real group of Peace Corps volunteers to serve in Peru since the end of the Shining Path. So um, security was pretty high. And we were required to live with a, a host family. But we wanted to figure out a way to get around that as much as possible. And we also asked to have two different counterparts. We were working under the um, umbrella of a local NGO and everything that we did. So Matt and I asked to be separated onto two different projects with two different counterparts. So we were assigned to move to Montero, which is a beautiful province in northern Peru um, near the Ecuadorian border. Montero is now known um, in the international circuit, or they like to claim themselves to be the premier city of, inter- of fair trade in the Peru. Um, which is because they're one of the major coffee-growing communities in uh, that part of the world. Actually, if you go to higher grounds, any of their a lot of their Peruvian coffee comes from the co-op that I worked with. Um, so we were 
placed in this lovely Peruvian, uh, this village at 7,000 feet. Um, and Matt was placed with his counterpart, which was this giant co coffee cooperative, helping them work on economic diversification projects. And I was placed with a very large international NGO, um, which you all probably know the name of, but I'm actually going to not say it. Uh, because I learned as I was moving through this that this shiny NGO that I'd heard so many wonderful things about over the world is actually an umbrella for USAID and was doing nothing in the community where I was working in. Um, so much so that as I've learned over the years, um, working in small, poor communities, a lot of NGOs tend to be staffed sometimes by people who really see themselves as being superior to the people that they're working with. So my partners, Matt had Matt's co-partner was this chemical engineer named Yenny. She was about five foot one. She's still one of my very dear friends. Three master's degrees, and she's running all these sugar processing plants. She could do. She could just whip all these sugar farmers into shape and they were doing a lot of income diversification projects so they're processing all this different type of sugar that's grown next to coffee and it's very complicated and it was lovely and that meant Matt was working round the clock and he was never home and he was always at meetings or out in the field teaching accounting helping do HACCP certifications for sugar processing plants and doing all this different stuff and my counterparts who never came into town they would drive through town every three weeks or so in their shiny Toyota hybrid pickup truck and not get out of the car. So we arrived in December um, in Montero, which means we arrived in the rainy season, which means that we moved into town and it started to rain and it didn't stop for four weeks. And so my husband is busy, he's working, he's doing all this stuff and I'm sitting in our room. Now, I had mentioned that we had found our host family situation in training to be loving and caring, but we wanted something a little bit more independent. And so when we moved to Montero, we were, um, the first person we met when we went into the mayor's office for our first meeting was this short little woman named Hilda. Hilda, um, she looked, uh, she had this fuzzy black hair that started growing from about back here on her head. And I'm just saying this because it'll come into uh, mean something a little bit further. And she had a big birthmark on her nose that kind of looked like a wart. So Hilda was our host mom, and our host mom in the most passive way possible, and that we rented a room from her, which was about 25 feet long and about five feet wide, and it had no windows, and it was entirely built out of concrete. And at the end of the room, there was a toilet and something slightly resembling a shower and a little tiny sink, and there were two steel doors, but no windows. Um, and she really didn't help us in any way, or, you know, we just... We figured out how to get everything to work, but she definitely kept track of where we were going and what we were doing and was asking us a lot of questions about what we were working on. Um, so that was fine. We wanted the independence and we were doing everything we could. So as the time went on though, and I'm sitting in this windowless room and I'm starting to feel kind of panicked, like wh why am I here? Who the hell am I to go halfway across the world to think I'm actually gonna help somebody? And I'm just sitting in this windowless room with nothing to do and it's raining and it's raining and there's actually cockroaches dropping down on the ceiling every single night in the dozens. But even worse were the cockroaches were the dust mites. So you'd go to sleep and you could just feel these teeny tiny bugs all over your body and you think you're going crazy, but they're actually, thousands of them on your body and they're about the, the like smaller than my tiniest freckle and but they are there but you actually can't see them being there I mean so you just feel like you're going nuts and I was just having a total crisis panic 
So one morning I wake up and I hear that the care, the, the NGO truck is coming through town. And I was just like, okay, fine. I'm going to go find him. And I waited on the corner and I got there and I was like, dude, I need to do something. Tell me something I can do to make a difference. And he just babbled on for a while. But then he finally said that he heard that somebody in town had talked about organizing some women weavers. And I was supposed to be doing small business enterprise development. So I thought, okay, women, handicrafts, weaving, I can do this. Turned out this person who wanted to organize the women was a failed politician and she was looking for somebody to help her build a name for herself. But it didn't matter, I was gonna do this. So I spent six months um, walking up and down the mountains, going to all the different villages around the community that we were in, because Montero is a rural district. That means that there's a village of about 2,000 people. And then there's 43 casarillos, which are little tiny hamlets up and down in the mountains all the way around the village, none of which had roads to get to. So I would have to walk like anywhere from 30 minutes to three and a half hours to get to these towns. And I did it. I did it for six months. I went up and I met all these women that everybody gave me names for. And I, I really joined them together and I got them to come to meetings and I said, okay, you know what? I believe in you and I believe in this craft that you've been doing all your lives and I think we can modernize it a little bit. We can take your saddlebags and your ponchos and everything that you've been making for generations and we can tweak them a little bit and we can try to form them into products that you can sell. And I did convince them that they could, I believed in them enough that they started to believe in themselves and we started designing products and um, we worked with the NGO to get them to put up $500, just enough to start some yarn and the women put in money of their own. And when they began to form an organization and they, they, we created this um, elaborate scheme where they would um, pay themselves interest on all the yarn that they took out of the organization and started growing and growing. And we designed all these products. But when, um, and most of these women were from the most rural districts of the community. Uh, so, and that's the, the women I really wanted to be helping were the poorest women in the community. Except that Hilda, my landlady, who had to be keeping track of everything I was doing, she got wind of what was going on and everything that I was doing to help all these poor women and all the time I was spending going out into the poorest villages in the community, helping these women design products and promising that I was gonna help them sell them. So she decided she needed to join the organization too. I had never seen her weave anything thing or her friends or anyone in town do any weaving but I didn't really know how to say no so she joined the organization and for reasons that I didn't quite understand at the time all of these poor less educated women who lived in these tiny little hamlets we were working with women who lived in about 15 little hamlets they elected Hilda president of the organization so we go forward another few months and I take them and their products to a sale in Lima to sell some of their products. It's not the most sustainable business model, but Peace Corps volunteers and organized this sale at the embassy. And I didn't really believe in it as a long-term solution, but I knew it was a way to test some of these products before we started looking for other markets. So we take them all there. And we, we, you know, we, we start working our butts off just to get enough products together. And I start to notice something mysterious happening in the building where I'm living, and that there are women who I'd never seen before coming down the mountain at dawn, their feet caked with mud, handing Hilda packages in the mornings before, you know, and then going back up. And she gives them a tiny bit of money and they leave. One thing leads to another and I start asking around. Turns out Hilda isn't weaving anything, but what she's doing is using my position as helping create this organization to take advantage of dozens of other women and getting them to weave for her so that she can be the middleman and make a buck off of it. 
Now, I don't know how many of you people have worked with very poor people, but there's a mentality that I have learned working in development issues, not only abroad, but also in the US. When you work with people that have the least in life, Sometimes we run up into something I'll call this, I'm going to screw you before you can screw me mentality. Maybe you've witnessed this in your own life. This is something I've seen a lot now, where when people are really used to getting screwed over all the time by everybody they encounter, they tend to develop a mentality of thinking ahead and figuring out how they can take advantage of every situation. And what Hilda had decided was that since the Grinka was living in her house, she had every right to take advantage of this project that we were going through and that she was just going to go around and gather up a bunch of things and have other people work for her and she's going to play the middleman and I was going to help her sell the stuff. Well, I knew I couldn't confront her before this big sale. So we got through the end of the sale. And then, then the women did very well. The products that they had created sold very well. Um, I came back with more money stuffed in my bra on that trip from Lima than most of these families see in a year. Um, so that was a little shocking. But we gave them all their earnings. And it was life-changing. Some of these women walked out of that meeting that Sunday with more money than their husband had seen in three months. So you can imagine that that was kind of a bit of a, a change. But we also had to deal with the fact that we knew that there was this group of women from town that Hilda had organized that was taking advantage of the situation. But Hilda also happened to be my landlady. And I had also gotten a little bit further into the story as I had been asking around and figured out why everybody in town was letting Hilda take advantage of them. It's because Hilda was the daughter of the region's most famous shaman. This part of Peru is known for their shamanism. And her father had been legendary for, and, her, and his father before him, and his father before him for generations of being the most gifted shamans in the history of this valley, which meant that everybody thought Hilda was a witch and could put a curse on anyone who crossed her. Time went on a little bit. I dug a little bit more. When you're an outsider, it takes a long time to figure out exactly what's going on around you. I realized that her husband is also being accused of doing the same thing with coffee. So he's selling coffee on the fair trade organic market that he's buying from uncertified farmers off right outside my bedroom window. Um, she's also been stealing from the... Uh, uh, pharmacy that the priest is running um, outside of the pharmacy, which she had gotten herself elected on the board of that. She's just stealing from everything. But everybody in the community says, I can't stand up to her because she's a witch and she's going to curse me forever. <laughs> I stood up to her. I really questioned myself because, you know, it's a culture of corruption. You don't really know. Everybody's used to this. They just want to let it be. They just want to turn the other way. But I was the outsider. And I also didn't feel like I wanted to work for years and years to help people take advantage of other people. I wanted to help people feel empowered on their own. And maybe that was my own idealistic naivete. But I felt very dedicated to, to nipping this off of the bud. So I confronted her at a meeting and I said, no way. And I kicked her out. And the very next day, we moved out of her apartment. And we moved into a different apartment down the block. And the very first night, we um, went to bed in that apartment. And we woke up about an hour later and realized that there was two dozen bats over our ceiling. And I thought, huh, that's a little weird. I've never seen a bat before. We got rid of the bats, brooms, we got them out the window. A few days later, we come home at dusk and we turn off the lights and our entire apartment is infested by swarms of bees. 
There was a hive of bees the honey that had moved into the apartment at dusk, and there were thousands of bees in our new apartment just hanging in the ceiling. I just spit it off as a coincidence, and we just let it go. And so on and so forth. I went forward, um, but nothing else happened, I don't think. You know, we got sick. And the, the business kept going. Um, the women still have this organization 15 years later. They're not selling as much as they were in the intermediary, um, but they've been visited by the US ambassador. They've been exporting to Europe occasionally. They're always looking for new markets, but we succeeded. I, I decided that the, the bees and the bats weren't actually a curse. And I gave Hilda my bed when I left town. So I decided that you know maybe we were OK in the end. But every time I um, end up having something weird happen in my life, I still wonder if she did have the power to curse me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Next, Gary Schilke tells of being toe-to-toe with a bank robber when he worked as a teller. In the summer of 1969, I was a 19-year-old college student on break and working at the National Bank of Royal Oak as a teller. Not much happened at the branch, except one time a teller was putting a 50-pack of 10s in her safe below her cash drawer, and she accidentally leaned on the counter in such a way that her thumb went under the counter and accidentally pressed the hold-up button, which generated a silent alarm, and the police showed up, and she was super embarrassed, and we all got a lesson on trying to be more careful about generating false alarms. But one morning before we opened up, the manager came to the teller line. He said, I need a volunteer. I need somebody who would be willing to work for one week at this temporary trailer branch we have while they were building the real building nearby to take the place of one of the two tellers who was going on vacation for a week. Now, none of my coworkers wanted to do it, but I didn't care, so I volunteered. I showed up bright and early on a Monday morning, and this nice woman, the assistant manager, welcomed me in, and she introduced me to this other guy, Stan, who was uh, the other teller. He was another college student, about three years older than me, and she said, Gary, it's just the three of us today. The manager is off, so it's just going to be us three, and I want you to work the drive through window, and Stan here will show you around before we open up. So Stan was showing me around. Now, Stan was a guy who was full of himself. He was just bragging about how smart he was, how experienced he was, you know, um, which hard courses he was taking, on and on. But he did show me a closet where he hung his sport coat, and he said, you can hang your sport coat there if you want, because it's okay to work in just a shirt and a tie here. So I thought, okay, that's fine. And so I did that, and I went to my drive-through window, behind me, and I was looking for my hold-up button, and I couldn't find it. So I asked Mr. Know-it-all if he knew where my hold-up button was. And he said, oh, well, there isn't one there, but uh, if you turn around and face the lobby, like so, there's a closed teller window. You just use that one. So I thought, well, awkward, but (laughs) okay. And then the assistant manager opened up and we were, we were doing business. It was busy that morning, time went by, everything was fine. Uh, 
before we knew it, it was like about 11.30, and the assistant manager said, boys, I'm going to lunch. You guys will be fine. And out the back door she went. So we took care of a few more customers, a few more cars came by, Stan took care of some customers, and then before we knew it, there was nobody in the branch, and I had nobody going through my drive-through. So I was just looking out the drive-through window, staring at nothing, daydreaming, and Stan was behind me at his teller window, and he was counting a pack of 50s, and I could tell that he was counting because I could hear him like, just the, the bills hitting the, the counter. And all of a sudden, he stopped. And I thought to myself, well, that's a quick pack, 50 pack. Like, he probably didn't even get past 25. And I just thought it was odd. And then the next thing I know, he said something, as if he was talking to himself. And I said, what? And he said, I think we're being held up. So I turned around. And boom, here is this guy right behind the teller line with Stan and me, like just big as life, like he just appeared as if Scotty from Star Trek had beamed him there. I don't know how he got there. But I thought, my first thought was, well, customers aren't supposed to be behind the teller line. Only bank employees. And then my next thought was, oh man, this guy, he had a black nylon stocking over his face and he had a bag and he had a gun. And I thought, oh man, we are being held up. So this guy says, you guys go around the counter, go lay on the floor, don't touch anything, don't look anywhere, don't say anything, go ahead, move it, you know, and Stan disappeared. And I stood there. And he came a little closer, he says, move it. And I didn't move, because I was looking at the gun that he had. And it looked to me, well, at this point in my life, I had no experience with weapons. I'd never touched a gun, held a gun, seen a gun up close, you know. It looked to me like he had a toy gun. And it looked like a little black squirt gun that I had played with when I was a kid. In fact, I had read an article in the newspaper two weeks ago where a convenience store clerk actually got held up by a toy gun. They found it in the parking lot afterwards. So I thought to myself, well, I'm not getting held up by a toy gun. <laughs> so he got closer and was starting to get mad at me. And I was just standing there trying to think of what to do next. And then it happened. The sunlight came in and hit that gun. It glinted off the gun like shiny black metal. And I knew, OK, this is a real gun. So I thought, okay, my hold-up button, well, it was over there about two feet away. It might as well have been two miles away. I mean, it was like a bridge too far. I was never going to reach the hold-up button. So I put my hands up. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> and he, uh, he was started to shake. And I realized he was nervous. And I, I was just kind of sliding past him, and the gun is right in my chest, and it's shaking up and down. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, great, I'm finally cooperating, and he's going to accidentally shoot me. <laughs> but I slide past him, and I see that 50-pack on the counter that 
uh, of 20s that uh, Stan was counting. I make it around. Stan's laying on the floor. I get down next to him. I lay down next to him, and I'm thinking, my, I've got these good pants on, and I'm laying on this dirty floor. <laughs> but I lay right next to Stan, and I turn my head sideways to look at his because we're really close to each other. And I say, I whisper really quietly, do you think we should do anything? And his face is straight, it turned from white to red. I just watched it turn like someone was turning a dial. And his mouth was open and saliva was coming out. It reminded me of like a medieval banquet where there's a pig on the table and apples in the pig's mouth, except carpet fibers were going up his mouth. And I just said to myself, well, if he's not going to do anything, I'm not going to do anything. So I look back straight ahead, and the guy, by this time, the guy was done. He goes out the back door, but he holds it open, and he yells in, don't you guys get up. I'm going to open the door a couple times to just check on you to make sure you're still laying down there, and then he disappears. So about 15 or 20 seconds go by, and I turn my head again to stand, and I say, do you think he's gone? And to my surprise, Mr. Know-it-all popped up, and he went to the back door, and he opened the door, and he looked out, and he came back, and he said, Yep, he's gone. So Mr. Know-it-all went, went underneath a, a desk and pressed a hold-up button. Then he got on the phone to call the police. And I went back, back behind the teller line because I was just curious. And I found the two drawers were open. Most of the cash was gone. There was just a few bills in each drawer. And then as I'm leaving the teller line, I see this 50-pack of 20s is still on the counter. And I thought, oh, man, the guy missed it. There's $1,000. He could have just slept, slipped it into his little bag and had an extra grand. And then the weirdest thought popped into my head. I thought, like, well, I could just take that $1,000 and slip it into my sport coat pocket, which is hanging in the closet, and nobody would know the difference. So I make it around the counter, and I, I'm, past, I'm past Stan, and I... I end, up, I end up by the closet, and I'm by the closet for about, you know, a half a minute, and then these two cops just burst into the branch. One guy comes in from one way. The other guy comes in from the other way. It's a small lobby. They both have their guns. Stan and I, and they're, they're waving it, looking for somebody to shoot. Stan and I put our hands up in the air, and I think, you know, great, the second time I'm going to accidentally get shot. And then I'm thinking, you know, I'm glad this guy is gone. I mean, if he was still here, it would be like the gunfight at the OK Corral, and Stan and I would be right in the middle of it. <laughs> but anyway, one cop asks uh, Stan, you know, which way did he go? And Stan says, well, he went down the alley that way. And the other cop says to me, come on, let's go. And I go, what? He says, well, you know what he looks like. I said, well, kind of. He said, well, jump in the car. Maybe we can find him. So we go down looking for him, and then he asked me to give a description, and I say, well, he, you know, he had this black nylon mask on, it was, it was like a, you know, nylon stocking, it was a woman's stocking, you know, and then he had like a light shirt and dark pants, and then he radios that in, and a couple minutes later, the dispatcher comes back and says, well, you know, wait a minute, the other teller at the branch said that he had like a dark shirt and light pants, you know, so what is it, you know, and the cop looks at me, you know, all I could do is shrug. But we came back to the branch, and now the branch is filled with people. You know, there's cops there, there's the vice president of the National Bank of Royal Oak, who hired me a couple months earlier, counting out my drawer, saying, Gary, you're going to be a little short today. <laughs> and then there is this detective of the Royal Oak Police Department, says, Gary, come on over here, have a chair. He sets me down in a chair, and he interviews me. And I tell him everything. 
And then I start to get up, and he presses me down into the chair. He says, oh, Gary, just a minute. I got someone else who wants to talk to you. So now a detective from the state police interviews me. And now I start to get nervous. Why it took me so long, I don't know. Maybe events started to catch up with me. But I actually started getting nervous inside. And I even started shaking a little bit. And I'm thinking to myself, I could never be a spy. I couldn't hold a secret. People would be able to get it out of me, no sweat. But he finishes his interview, and I'm ready to get up. He goes, oh, just a minute. And now an FBI guy from an agent from the Detroit office, he interviews me, at which time I am nervous and kind of shaking, you know. And um, I glance over at the closet where my sport coat is hanging, and I think to myself, I am so glad I didn't take that $1,000. <laughs> <sighs> So the guy, they, they couldn't find the guy. They did find in a trash can in an alley, in the alley, the black nylon stocking that he was wearing. But uh, he got away, and I got the rest of the day off. <laughs> now, when I think back on this event, I realize that it could have gone so bad in so many different ways. First of all, I could have tried to be a hero and got myself shot. Secondly, I could have taken that thousand bucks and paid a big time price. I'm reminded of the words of General Douglas MacArthur, who's most famous for saying, I shall return. But he also said something else that doesn't get as much airtime that I think fits here, and I'm going to end with that quote. He said, Sometimes the difference between success or failure, victory or defeat, life or death is thinner than the width of a hair of an eyebrow. I'd say I was pretty lucky. In the next story, Elon Cameron tells of going toe-to-toe with a bunch of loudmouths in a taxi that pulled up next to her car. My partner Jen is transgender, genderqueer, gender nonconforming. They use the pronouns they, them, their. These are pronouns, not preferred pronouns. These are their pronouns. So I don't care if you were an English major or if you've been an editor for one million years. Um, update your crusty language to include everyone, because there's people you already know who are limited by these things. And honestly, if the Oxford English Dictionary is hip enough to get with this jive, you can too. So I hope that helps. Jen was raised a Southern Belle. I've always had a sense that I wanted to protect them, not because they're weak, not in the least. Just that Jen is an honorable person, and I believe that protecting honor is something that's honorable. And in a broader notion, when we stand up for someone's humanity that we believe in, we're actually standing up for humanity. Fighting, on the other hand, is so base. It's below us. It's so below us. But we all do it, and we all do it in our way. It feels like such a waste of time, but necessary sometimes. I grew up in a family of fighters. 
big fights. <laughs> One time when my mom was aiming at my dad with a television set, she missed and it went out the second story window of our Washington Street home. <laughs> the police were often involved when my parents fought more than a couple of times. I have an enormous amount of fight in me. And so for the last 26 years, I've dedicated myself to volunteerism and activism. I believe that each of us has a job in making the world a better place. So I've been building my resume all this time. I've volunteered for big organizations, for tiny nonprofits. I've educated myself and others about ableism, sexism, racism, homophobia, environmental issues, workers' rights, I'm probably forgetting something. I've also worked to balance the fighter in me by practicing martial arts since I was 18, namely Tai Chi, Qigong, and Bagua. One of my good friends, after seeing me practice one time, said, you know, you really look like you could kick someone's ass in slow motion. <laughs> we all know the saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. When I was seven, I passionately asked every adult I encountered whether they were going to be voting for the Equal Rights Amendment. And I had made three by five cards into little um, kind of political paraphernalia that I handed out with the kind of fervor that misty-eyed for Jesus people hand out Christian tracts with because they really believe it's your jo their job to save your soul. More on that another time soon. Um, I stood in picket lines. I learned very early how to shame scabs. How terrifying, like a seven-year-old me being like, you're bad, like, ooh, terrifying. When in grade school, a bully focused his efforts on me for a solid year, I really tried to ignore it. I took my teacher's and my parents' advice and I, I would just raise my eyebrows as high as I could and pretend I was looking at something above me. I'd just be like, it was pretty crazy looking, but I did it for a whole year. And then on one snowy day, <laughs> like some kind of crazy charging animal, I ran at Rob Catello, who was at least twice my size, and knocked him fucking face first into the goddamn <laughs> snowbank. baby's first trip to the principal's office. One time, after discovering that my grandmother had a respiratory issue secondary to a terminal heart condition, my mom and I emptied all the molded and mildewed collections from her brother's bedroom that had lived in my grandparents' house since he was a child, like some kind of shrine. At the time, I should point out he was in his 50s. My uncle, feeling he'd been unseated from some kind of princely throne, <laughs> through a full-blown hissy fit, and his wife would not have it either. She saw my mother as the enemy, and they started screaming at each other. I was hiding upstairs, as I'd become so adept at doing, and had to give myself a full-blown pep talk, even at age 20, to say, all right, I can handle looking and seeing what they're doing. So I peeked over the stairs, only in time to see my aunt take this enormous, like, woven grapevine reef that was really, you know, as 
big as a wreath could ever be, and totally encrusted in, in seashells that had been glue gunned all over it. And she's just hitting my mom with it. Just like completely insane. Seashells flying everywhere. And my mom just looks kind of weirdly surprised and unscathed. And after about four hits, she just slaps that woman right across the face. Her glasses go flying. And the screaming gets louder. And I'm like, I'm going to go hide again. And uh, so then my uncle and aunt get in their car. And they're screaming like threats at my mom as they're weirdly slowly backing down the driveway because they're terrible at backing up. You guys are so badass. <laughs> when they were gone, Cheryl turned to me and said, why didn't you try to stop me? And I was just like, hmm. Well, at the time, my mom was about six feet tall, and Roxanne weighed a good 400 pounds bone dry. So I said, well, if you saw a rhino and a giraffe charging toward each other, how would you get involved? which really didn't bring as much levity as I'd hoped. <laughs> I'd seen crazy rage quite enough. I really tried not to do that. I decided at that age I wouldn't do that. But I knew it was in me. I knew I could really do some major damage, probably mostly to myself, if I got into any such altercations. And so I'd never been completely taken over by blind rage like that. I'd certainly gotten close to like a bad scenario, but I'd always been able to say, hey, you know, let's just, let's just talk about this for a minute <laughs> until this one spring night. Uh, Jen and I had just seen a movie and we were driving south on Sheridan Road, coming back from Evanston to Rogers Park where we lived. And there's like a stoplight every single block on that street which is interesting. Jen was attending Northwestern University and also worked there with some of the most brilliant and overprivileged minds you'd ever have a chance to meet. You know, like Tom Hanks' son and Warren Buffett's grandson were there while Jen was working. It was one of those early spring warm nights where it gets a little too warm too fast and you have to drive with the windows down. And uh, we were just in a good mood. The music was playing, something on the radio, probably B96, and it was like bassy and bouncy. And we were like, yeah, we're happy and alive. And uh, next to us, a cab was approaching, and they were playing the same song, which I always think is such a cool phenomenon. It thrills me beyond words. And so Jen was giving them one of those kind of like, yeah, we're partying together. And these guys pull up right next to our car. And the guy in the passenger seat says, oh my god, that's the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my life. And it happened. I don't know where I went. I was not there. Uh, it was one of those things where people talk about seeing red. And I think that might have happened, but it was just rage unbridled. Our car was silent. Jen was pulling up to them at the next stop sign, preparing an insult. And by the time they'd had the window rolled down, I had leapt out of my door, walked in front of our car, and grabbed this kid by the shirt with such force that his ass left the seat. 
I <laughs> could hear the fabric of his shirt tearing. And when I saw that his face was pushed up against the rubber seal of the window, I paused and the three remaining brain cells active in my prefrontal cortex got together and on a three count yelled, don't! <laughs> and his friends in the back seat saw me pause and they grabbed him by his pants and pulled him back. And I was just not sure what to do because I had just opened my mouth so wide and made so much noise that the Kraken had been unleashed. And I was pretty sure even though they saved him, it was going to find that kid and kill it. <laughs> not fully knowing what had happened, this kid goes from the clutches of a homicidal lesbian to the arms of his duty bro heme bro bros. Aww. <laughs> I stumbled back into my seat, still kind of yelling, but once seated, I was completely overwhelmed with adrenaline and started kind of hyperventilating and stuff that I'm mostly used to. Jen, in a tactical move, jetted down side streets, took alleys, briefly took a one way, the wrong way, and we were parked in front of our house with the car turned off and the lights off within less than a minute. I was still panting. Jen looked at me and was like, I'm probably gonna see that fucking kid at Northwestern next week. I sort of paused and said, you're gonna have to tell me what just happened. Because I was sincerely confused. I know something happened, I knew that I yelled, but I don't remember the sequence of events. And Jen was like, okay, well, why don't you start with what you remember? <laughs> and I was like, that kid insulted you. Jen's like, yeah. And then what? I said, and then I went to the cab and grabbed him and yelled a bunch of stuff. And Jen's like, uh-huh. And then I went to hit him, but his friends pulled him into the back seat. And Jen's like, yes. Said, and I don't remember anything I said. And Jen's like, well, mostly you were just screaming the word apologize. But you did say, apologize, you fucker. Apologize, you fucking asshole. You apologize right fucking now, you worthless piece of hateful shit. And then you called him a misogynist prick and told him that his penis was going to fall off and no one would ever fuck him. <laughs> you screamed apologize about 15 more times while spitting on his face and some other things that I don't remember because I was really scared you were gonna hit him. <laughs> My whole life. Every single opportunity, I've been the person who has the perfect comeback three to five days after <laughs> the opportunity. But this one time, this one time, I fucking nailed it. Next, James Berg tells of a sort of love triangle at his workplace that leads to him going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a colleague.
I used to think in order to earn someone's respect, you needed to work hard and uh, be honest and nice. It seems to make sense. Uh, I was 29 years old. I just got married, and I just got a job as an adjunct professor. I'd never heard this term before, adjunct. We did not have adjunct professors in my family. My dad was in construction. My mother barely made it through college. And I was going to be teaching college, so I was proud and nervous. And I spoke with a friend from grad school, and he said, you know, whatever happens, just it's not personal. And that helped. Um, I didn't have to worry if, I, if they liked me or respected me. I just needed to do a good job. And, uh, and I was liked and respected, and I did do a good job. Uh, and that went on for a few years, and then they restructured the English and math departments and divided each one, so there was a position that opened up as coordinator. And somebody pulled me aside and said, you should go for that, and I did. And I had an interview coming up, uh, and I, was, I needed this job because my wife was pregnant, and I was determined to find something that was full-time with benefits. I was going to be selling insurance, or I would be doing this, or something. So I had this interview coming, and the night before the interview, and it was pretty late, and I got a phone call, and I answered the phone, and this guy yelled at me, and he said, grab a paper and a pen, James, <laughs> because I am concerned that you are going to misrepresent the position in your interview tomorrow. And this was the coordinator of the English department, the other one. And he just started talking. And, and I, I, I had like a old quizzes I was working on and, and I started writing on them and I took three pages of notes. He said, here's who's gonna be in the interview and here's what everybody expects the position to be. Here's the questions they're going to be asking. Uh, and, and then he hung up, he didn't say goodbye, he just hung up. I didn't know this guy. I was thinking, how did he even get my number? Uh, it was so strange and creepy, it was creepy. And I aced the interview. <laughs> they asked me every question and I had the best answers. It was, I was hilarious. <laughs> and after that interview, I was so uncomfortable there. I didn't feel like I'd earned my position. I had no way to talk with this guy. I didn't bring up the phone call. I just, I don't know, maybe I should have, but I just, tried to get along with him, and this was the beginning of a long and awkward friendship. I felt like I owed him something, and I felt like he felt like I owed him something. Uh, this guy, he was enormous, and he was crumpled. He was always crumpled, and he's walking in like this, and he had this forehead. He walked with his forehead, and he'd open, we had this shared faculty space, like 25 desks, and everybody's just trying to, you know, just mind their own business, and he would open the door, and he would say, young James. He called me Young James. I was a f one fucking year older than me. I said nothing. I was just trying to get along. Young James. He would do this stuff like he'd be like, look at the screen. He'd be on the computer and I'd look and say, it's porn. That's porn. He's looking at porn. And I wouldn't say anything. I would just try to do my work. And he would, he would, uh, he wanted to be a part of my personal life. He wanted to hang out with my friends. One time he called me late at night and it was very weird. I think he was drinking. He said, I heard you talking about something. I want to come along. And I said, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. And it was always like that. And then he would, I would say something or we would do something and the next day in that shared lounge, he would be broadcasting it. He wanted everybody to know how close we were. 
He wanted everybody to know how close he was with the director of human resources. Now there was that other position, the math position. Uh, this woman was awesome. She was gorgeous. I was in love with her, and she knew it, and she loved that I was in love with her. And she would flirt with me, and we would flirt it was right in that shared space, and everybody was watching, and I didn't care because I'd tell my wife about it, and she'd say, oh, my God, that woman is flirting with you. i said, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> she told me her husband was mad at me because she had told him that she had dream cheated on him with me. She said, I told him that we were making love in the shower. I was like, oh my gosh. So this went on for quite a while. This guy, let's call him Percy. <laughs> he has a party and he invites all of us over. He has a hot tub, of course, because he's a creep. So the math teacher, she invites all of the women into the hot tub room. I was there with my daughter. She was a toddler at that point. My daughter went into the hot tub room. All the women went into the hot, room, hot tub room. The math teacher locked the door, and they all got naked. And they were skinny dipping in the hot tub. She had my naked daughter on her lap, and it was there with all of the women that the math teacher said that she was having an affair with one of her students. One of the women in the hot tub was Percy's wife. So he found out about it, and he was livid, and he was talking to me about it. He said he did not approve. Uh, he said it was the deception that he didn't like. And I was like, do you know who you are? <laughs> and he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to talk to the HR director, and he wanted me to come with him. And for the first time ever, I told him no. And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, you know, there's a rumor going around that you and she are having an affair, too. And it was odd, and it was creepy, and it was obvious that he wanted me to understand that if I didn't do this, then somehow I would get wrapped up in it on the losing side. I didn't talk to him anymore. And a couple weeks went by, and then she did get fired, and he found somebody else to do it. And she called me that night on the phone, and she was crying. And she said, I don't understand. And I said, well, let me tell you what I know. And she said, but he liked me. He gave me the in interview questions for my interview, too. And it just seemed to me like he was kind of choosing who would get the job and then choosing if, if it was time for them to get fired and it was all corrupt and, and, and it seemed like I was next. Uh, so I didn't really think, I kind of did it like the way I play chess. I just, uh, I just made a bold move. I, I went to the HR director the next day and I, 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 I made my complaint. Uh, I complained about sexual harassment. And I said that he was harassing me, and it was unwelcome, and it was about somebody's sexual life, and I didn't want to be a part of it. And the HR director, she, she kind of had like a face like this. <laughs> she had her hands on the desk, wide open, and she said, you know, you're talking about my close personal friend. And she said, he did a brave thing, and I'm not going to help you. And if you tell anybody, I'll tell them that you lied. I threw up my hands. I said, I'm afraid of him. And she said, good. At least you respect him. I was broken. And then she got sweet and sugary. And she said, you know, 
come by and see me sometime. Don't walk by my office and don't say hello. I left, I went to this shared faculty space and he was there and I just started screaming. The phone call, the this, the that, we're gonna go through all of it, you and me and the HR director. And he was crying, it was terrible. And we never spoke again. I was there for seven more years, we never spoke. <laughs> seven years, he had his area, I had mine. He stayed out of my way, I stayed out of his. I'll tell you, I was a lot more comfortable in that job after that. Anybody in my department had a problem, I was their advocate. If I had something that I needed, I found a way to make sure that I got it. I figured out, you know, these people in administration, they're just all afraid. And so I figured out, I had a great schedule after that. <laughs> Two days a week. It's not personal. It was never personal. Uh, but sometimes you come across somebody who wants to make sure that it is personal. There are people who just... He was a good guy, he was generous, he was just troubled, and he wanted to get under my skin. And when you are dealing with a bully, you beat a bully. You push, you push back, and you push again until you have created some sort of balance. And the whole school closed down, they, they, they laid off everybody. It's three years ago, I've never seen him, I hope I never see him again, and I'll tell you why. It's because I respect him, and I hope he respects me too. And in our last story, Nancy Baker sets her sights on going toe-to-toe -to -toe at a friendly bake-off. My family was invited to a neighborhood barbecue. And not only was this a really fun all day, hang out at the beach and eat a lot of great food kind of barbecue, um, but it was also notorious as the scene of some really noteworthy food because the family had decided to be incredibly American in their approach to this fun family barbecue and they made it a cutthroat competition. In fact, it wasn't even called a barbecue, it was called the annual rib off. And they had t-shirts made, and they had trophies made that looked like hands holding ribs, and um, they were super serious about this. And they even developed a voting system that had all the nuances of um, the judgments of an Olympic ice skating competition. I mean, it was like, every it was really, really, really intense. So the competition was not just rib focused, but it extended into two other food categories known as sides and desserts. And I knew not to mess around with the sides because people are super particular about their sides. And for instance, I am certain that many long simmering family feuds can find their roots in that ever polarizing debate of Miracle Whip versus mayonnaise in potato salad. And in fact, when I was a kid, my own father once refused to spend Fourth of July at my favorite aunt's house because he would have had to, quote, eat her tainted with goddamn pickle relish potato salad, and he was going to have none of it. Yeah. 
So my game was going to be desserts. And I felt that desserts offered a really strong advantage because in the early 90s, I skipped out on a paid maternity leave that I was given for Kraft General Foods and instead stuck my child in daycare and enrolled in a year-long cooking program where I could obtain a degree in pastries. And I had never become an actual practicing pastry chef, but in my heart, I always donned the chef's whites and had a whisk in my hand. Like, in my mind, I had this going on. And I had studied under a really crazy French master pastry chef, and so I had become really good at two things. Creating impressive desserts, and the second thing was being incredibly arrogant, arrogant about those desserts. <laughs> like, really judgy. Um, and I knew what I was going to bake. I made these brownies, and they were wonderfully deceptive. And at first glance, they were just these banal little chocolate things sitting on a plate that could have come out of any Betty Crocker box. But these brownies packed a punch delivered by a full pound of melted butter and nearly half a container of cocoa. And I even had to basically take out a second mortgage to buy this extra special double strength vanilla. And the recipe took some work. You had to make it the night before. You had to whip this up. You had to bake it, then put it in the refrigerator, carefully wrapped, let it sit overnight so it became sort of fudgy and intense. Then you flip the whole thing out, and then you hand cut each brownie with a heart-shaped cookie cutter. And then you could even take the scraps around it and package those and call those broken hearts, and it was just adorable. And everybody really, <laughs> really loved these things. So. So I pulled out all the stops for my rib-off batch of brownies, and I even invested in that higher-fat European kind of butter for it. So like, these things were like, you could really get gout just eating like three of them. <laughs> and I decorated my favorite white platter with candied freaking violets that I had made myself, and I decided I was gonna go full out Martha Stewart on their asses and just win. So the day of the barbecue, I walked into this friendly, buzzy, you know, group of really nice people, and I surveyed all the other desserts on the table. And there was a nice peach cobbler, and there was some kind of like lemon layer cake, and there was even something made out of blueberries, and I just smiled. And I thought to myself, your fruit, because when I think to myself, I speak French. So <laughs> your fruity fashions, they are so lovely, but the dessert game, everyone knows, like, chocolate always wins. So, you know, it's like channeling my French instructor. That's my French, this is like English with an accent. And that's when I looked and I realized someone else had brought brownies. And it was a young woman, a young, really strong woman from Hamtramck. She was a lifelong friend of the host's. And she walked into that party with such an incredible sense of purpose. She elbowed her way confidently, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she knew everyone over to the table, and she set down her bowl. Now, she was a member of a really large extended family, and they were all there. And she was definitely the alpha of that group. And it was rumored that several people in her clan had taken home several awards in previous years. There was the best ribs of 2008, and apparently in 2010, there was some killer noodle dish that took the side dish category. And this young woman's brother kind of sidled up next to her, and he looked at what she had brought, and I heard him say, what the hell? 
but she didn't miss a beat. With an enviable nonchalance, she swiped a beer off the counter, popped the top, and she said, yeah, I had a little problem. I tried to make brownies, but they wouldn't come out of the pan, and they kept breaking. So I just said, fuck it, and I just put all the pieces in this bowl, and I figured they'll all taste the same. And I thought, oh my god, you know, what kind of a person does this? You know, it's like, it's like so disturbing. But suddenly, I was a little afraid. And I looked at a really sad-looking bowl of deconstructed brownies, and I thought, damn, that's kind of a really bold move. And I was like, was this genius or just laziness? I don't know. But either way, I'm really scared. And certainly on this groaning table of all these well-groomed cakes and treats and things, her bowl stood out. So why was she so confident? I had no idea. Her approach intimidated me, but I still believe that my months of training and an insane Frenchman who had taught me everything he knew would cause me to win. Each person took a brownie, a slice of cake, a scoop of cobbler, and they were encouraged to fill out the voting ballot. And it was like this really complex ballot where there was like, you know, on a scale of it, and there was a 0.5 you could put in, and all this stuff. It was like, it was really complicated. And they, so you voted on your favorite dessert. And there, were, there was a first place, a second place, and a third place. And in about an hour, all the desserts were consumed, and all of the ballots were in. And the evening came to a close, and the cobbler was eaten, and the barbecue sauce was wiped off of people's faces, and they made the announcements. Her brownies won first place. I didn't place at all. And there were only like eight desserts, and I didn't even come in third. Not my brownies won, but her bowl of brownie, brownie parts won. And so her thing that looked like a brownie autopsy <laughs> took this first place, and I was so stunned. I mean, I was like, Hillary didn't win stunned. <laughs> so, like, my whole, the axis of the earth was like off kilter for me. I don't even remember leaving, basically. And all I remember was walking out and a whole lot, and I mean a whole lot of people were congratulating her. And then I had this epiphany. All these people looked strangely like they shared DNA. <laughs> like this large tribe of Detroiters were all saying, good job. And then I realized it was her siblings, it was her parents, it was her in-laws, it was her cousins. They had all voted for her. She knew it was locked. She had like 25 people there. So at least it all makes, made sense to me. So I took my platter, I weakly thanked the host, and in a blur of loser haze, I walked home, but I was a much wiser baker. And I was already plotting my rematch. Because after all, this ribboff was an annual affair, and I thought, if I play my cards right, I'll be invited back, and I will claim my rightful spot <laughs> in the winners, which means nothing, right? But anyway. <laughs> So what ensued what was what can only be called a year of revenge baking. Because that's normal. And it was also super time consuming and really, really expensive. And also a little unhinged. I needed to find the perfect dessert 
And one day, with only about a month to go, I, I locked on it on my like 100th trip to Pinterest. And there it was, salted caramel shortbread bars. They were these perfect little flaky layers of shortbread with a homemade caramel layer and then a top with ganache and then sea salt for a final crunch and finish. And you cut them in these perfect little squares. One pot, amazing. They were, and I, so I did what any normal person would do and I did five test batches <laughs> to make sure, which is also, you know, it's super normal. And I thought these are winners for sure. So I strode into the rib off a few weeks later with my same white platter and I walked with the swagger of someone who had been knocked down hard and had no intention of ever going to that place again. And I put my dessert down and I didn't even look around to see what else was there. It didn't matter. I was so confident because I knew I was the only legit pastry chef there. Chef there. And I knew that those salted caramel things were awesome. But mostly I knew that I took my entire family to the event that year. Yeah. So, fool me once. I was a rube no longer. This was not my first rodeo. I brought a killer dessert, and I also brought my son, my daughter, my son's girlfriend, my son's best friend, a random house guest, my husband, and an underprivileged child that we mentored. All of these people were individually seated and told with no uncertainty, I don't care what desserts are there. Do you under, look at me, do you understand? I don't care if fucking Julia Child is resurrected from the dead, makes a 10-layer cake, and it's there. You vote for the squares that I've brought. Is that, do we under, okay. And I won. <laughs> I heard my name announced when they said, and first place in the desserts category goes to and I overheard my previous year brownie nemesis mutter, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, whatever, bitch, indeed. <laughs> so I was pretty happy. And I was super gloaty. I was so gloaty, in fact, that about five weeks later, I was invited to a very, very, very end of the summer other barbecue soiree. It was just an innocent one with no competitions. And I started talking to this guy that was seated next to me. And he brought up the fact that he was really full and he probably shouldn't go back up for a second piece of whatever dessert was there because he has a sweet tooth. And he was like, and I thought, oh man, I'm sure it was not the beer I had had. I'm sure it was just that I thought that this was the perfect segue for telling my incredibly engaging brownie saga. You know, <laughs> a real meaningful tale of social justice, you know? <laughs> And I got really into the drama. I believe, as a matter of fact, one time I actually said the words, bitch went down. <laughs> and then I noticed that the guy was just staring at me. <laughs> he had no response at all. He was just you know, kind of looking at me. And then he made up some polite excuse to get the hell away from me and all the obnoxiousness that I was being at that moment. And as he walked away, it struck me that I had met this guy before, 
and that it was um, at the rib-off, and that he was the brownie bitch's brother. So the neighbors who have the rib-off for the following year canceled the competition for the first time in 20 years. There was no competition. They still had their gathering, and we were invited, and people still brought food to share, and there was, but there was no voting, there was no competition, there was no ballots. It was just eating and talking and trying to act like civilized human beings. And you know, they said the reason that they canceled it was because it, the competition was just a lot of extra work for them. All those ballots to count and things like that. That They just, they just couldn't do it anymore. They didn't want to get the trophies. It was just a lot of work. But I suspected something different. I think it was for a totally different reason. I suspect it was because some of those contestants just got out of hand. <laughs> Thank you. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we have a special guest in our studio today, Erin Whiting from Parallel 45. How are you doing, Erin? I'm doing great. Thanks. So great to have you here. And uh, we're going to be talking about the theme for the very next Hearsay show, which is October 15th. And the theme of that is schooled. And that is C, C, I can spell, S C H O O L apostrophe D. <laughs> yeah, right, for real. <laughs> As evidenced by my ability to spell, this is a perfect theme for hearsay. Um, so the theme is schooled. Now, these could be, you know, the themes that hearsay are meant to be interpretive. So that could be a story about going to school, about teaching at a school, about learning a hard lesson, you know, school, like the verb form, or, um, but it doesn't have to take place in a school. You know, that's, that's super hyper literal. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I've actually, I've been thinking on this concept of school because we're having this conversation today. And I realized I was terrified of school when I was growing up. I basically lived, I grew up in a suburb that was ripped straight out of a John Hughes movie. You know, where they were like, <laughs> oh, don't be. I'm jealous. Was there a lot of pink? Were the, were the, the jocks and the popular girls and the cliques and all Yes. That. Yeah. And I had a toe in each group pretty much. I was friends with like people in all the spaces, but it was still just, you know, one false move. I remember someone came up to me in the hallway my freshman year and I was wearing a sweater and some popular girl came up to me and said she liked my sweater and someone else leaned in and said, you know, you did good because she just said that like that's. Yeah, you've arrived. <laughs> Pretty much everything is dependent on the endorsement of just a couple of people who actually nobody really likes. This is the big <laughs> secret that you learn later and sort of this is like the growing up moment when you're like, oh, I hated that person. They were horrible. And then you realize everybody felt that way. But there was a social contract where nobody talked about it. And they just still went along with that person's opinion and cared what they thought. And yet they were universally disliked. Yeah. That's power. Yeah, no, That's 100%. Power. And I'll tell you, it wasn't probably until my 20th high school reunion, which I actually went to, which was a surprise to everyone, including myself. <laughs> I did not go to my 10th, but I went to my 20th. And it, 
that's where all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, these people aren't scary at all. No, no. And it's actually, that's the best possible outcome of a reunion. Yeah. Because on Facebook, who knows? Because they're curating their own story. You know, they're really, they're editing heavily. So you're like, I can't tell if these people are terrible. They're not terrible. Did that person succeed? Did they not succeed? You can't tell. But you go to the reunion and they cannot edit the entire experience of being with them. So you get to find out. It's like highly satisfying. Oh, it was wonderful. It was, I, I, for those out there who (laughs) think, you know, I hated high school, I would never go to my reunion. It is actually something that flips the script. But I mean, I think that I was pretty much like thrust into this fear of school, like right out of my home. My brother literally used to chase me around the house with his arms out to the side and like hopping from foot to foot, say, like in a haunting Scooby-Doo voice saying, school, <laughs> school. And I would run and hide under the bed. Like it was at a, a young, young age. We're talking like afraid of first grade. No, I think afraid like, of freshman year of freshman high school. Freshman year of high school. <laughs> I didn't fit under the bed so well, but I tried. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, oh my goodness, I just, I, I, honestly, I think that maybe that is also, uh, like, why I became drawn to teaching at some point. I used to teach college English, and I think it's similar to the people who, like, the people with um, severe anxiety who go into mental health professions, like they're trying to heal themselves as much as It's the only reason you would others. actually be interested in the topic to that extent is if you had some connection with it. Right. You know, it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. There's also been some really weird things that have stuck with me that on the surface are like they're not anything. Like that's I don't I have said since Hamilton came out that if school was taught like if if history was taught like Hamilton, I'd remember everything, but I remember very little. <laughs> but I do remember weird social experiences. Oh, sure. Yeah, like in fourth grade, and you know, P.S. to those of you out there who don't know me, I'm very far from fourth grade right <laughs> now. Um, probably almost forty years out of fourth grade, and um, my teacher had brought in chili for everybody. Like just a pot of chili that we were all gonna have for lunch, you know. That was my first experience experience in eating chili, and I didn't like it. And I went up to the was teacher. It meat chili? Or yeah, was it yeah. Meat? It was beef, beefy yeah. chili. I grew up. This is a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. School lunches, and yeah. healthy, and the not. I had a very healthy mom, like straight out of like the seventies. Like, let's make our own yogurt and do this and that. So her chili was always like beans and vegetables and all the natural things that I dreamed for the Hormel chili like from a can that was the dream never had it never had it also Manwich dreamed of that that also looked like chili but it was in a can never got those things sandwiches were good yeah Yeah. did you like school lunch was like the time when like if there was ever a moment for like true envy to like come out within you I felt like it was like elementary school cafeteria because you're like those kids have the thing that I want that my mom will never pack me right and like can you trade can you barter 
there was a lot of like have have not cool not cool around lunch nobody wanted your homemade yogurt <laughs> nobody wants your homemade yogurt or your like weird nutty fit bread with like seeds in it nobody wants that they want wonder bread that you can ball up into just like you know about the size of a snowball like if you took your whole sandwich like you could just like it would stay like that and that's, use it as a weapon you could use it as a weapon and that that's what people wanted they wanted that they wanted oscar meyer bologna yeah, never had it. If I got peanut butter, it was like the nutty, no sugar kind. Oh. And then and then my brother was six years younger. He got all the fun lunches. It's like oh, my course. parents sort of gave up. They're like, well, that was fun going to the health food store, but let's buy Jif now. Right. Like, what? That's How so dare un- you? That's so unfair. But, you know, you have parents who, yeah, came of age in the area era of health food and hippies and you know, as a as a child, you bear the brunt at school lunch. Now, though, I don't know. That could be fashionable. Depends on what school. Right. You go to the Montessori <laughs> school. People are into that for lunch. They want the nutty bread. Yeah. But at the public school I went to, that was not. <laughs> it was not a thing. Oh yeah, no. I I remember when I was at overnight camp when I was a kid and I was trying to be a vegetarian and. That wasn't really a thing back then. I mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't an accommodated thing. No. So like, oh, I, well, I guess you can just take the meat out of your sandwich and yeah, eat the bread. I ate ketchup sandwiches until I was so starving that I was like, I will eat meat. <laughs> Yay, meat. <laughs> ketchup sandwiches. I don't recommend them. So, yeah. So, anyway, so I went up to my teacher and I said, I'm sorry, I don't like this chili. And there was just this, like, mean girl pile on. <gasps> How dare you say that to her? That was so rude. And so that was an early lesson in never tell people what you're really thinking. <laughs> what you're really thinking. Or never have an opinion about food people like or don't like because it's so personal. Like, Or what people make. Right. Very personal about it. Yeah, like clearly I'm still not over the shunning of my nutty bread. Like it, it has stuck with me throughout the ages. Right. Oh, so... so we went to very different types of schools. Like I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. And um, went to um, in the public schools there. Um, but there was the population of my hometown, I think, was like 35,000 maybe. Um, you grew up in a smaller town. I did. I grew up in um, Elk Rapids, which is tiny. And, you know, the, pop- the whole high school had, I don't know, maybe 400 kids in it, if I'm remembering this correctly. So my class had just shy of like 100. Wow. Yeah. So tiny town, um, you know, you knew every person in that school, whether or not you were friends with them, you knew who they were. And you've probably been, you know, with them since elementary school. And then occasionally there'd be that new person. And because there were so few, you'd remember, she came in fifth grade. (laughs) Or she came at this time. Like when they entered the, like, you know social strata right (laughs) you knew yeah but then after ninth grade which so I had one year at the high school the the public high school I um left and I went to Interlochen Arts Academy so then I was off to the world of um, private arts education like with an international student body so it could not have been more different even though it's not that far which is no right down the road right down the road yeah and not any bigger really the academy only had like 400 in change students Mm -hmm. and when I started as a sophomore my class was 60 kids wow and about 200 plus when I graduated a lot of people come for just their junior and senior year so you have these small freshman and sophomore classes and then a lot of people just come 
for the final two years. But you have people from all over the country, you know, all 50 states, and then about a quarter is international. So even though it was just down the road, well, about an hour away, I was living in a dorm, boarding there, would occasionally go home on weekends, and with people from like the biggest variety of life. So, you know, Elk Rapids, not a super lot of diversity. And everyone, for the most part, was sort of on the same socioeconomic spectrum. Mm -hmm. Like, there were maybe the rich kids who got that pair of Jerbo jeans without having to do chores for it. And mm -hmm. then the kids that had to do chores for it. But, like, that's the scale. Mm -hmm. You go to Interlochen, and there are kids that are there on scholarship who are from the middle of Iowa, who, you know, are pretty um, from a modest background or from Serbia and they're there on a full scholarship and they came with like the one pair of pants they own so there's that and then the kids who come on their parents private jet and get dropped off there or the kids who come from you know Asia and they come with um more luggage than you've ever seen in your life and like the fanciest most exciting um clothes and like electronics and all the stuff that in the 90s you haven't seen you're like wow that's amazing <laughs> so there was like this disparity like there was this this range this like breadth and that's just the socioeconomic range but it was like whoa open the eyes from the little girl from Elk Rapids yeah no that's you know? awesome I'll tell you actually it was in grade school that um, I wanted to become a writer because I remember my family had moved into a house um, and I found a dead squirrel in the backyard and I was so, I have a highly sensitive personality type, um, I'm told, <laughs> but it does check out like all, but, uh, so there, I found a dead squirrel in our backyard and I was so profoundly upset about it that I wrote an essay and instead of my teacher saying to my parents, this girl needs like extensive therapy, he <laughs> said, this girl is a terrific writer. You should encourage this. And so, yeah, that was, um third grade i think um well well done on the teacher's part yeah you know, because no, he was what is mm -hmm. writing but crazy sensitive people who need therapy exactly you know, they tend to be the best writers so oh I think your my teacher god was on. i'll be honest with you like ever since i've like like gotten into my 40s and I feel so much better about myself than I ever have my writing has suffered <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's like people that stop drinking it really does impact their writing <laughs> yeah, the writing world has no space for the emotionally healthy <laughs> no it doesn't or just sort of arts in general but particularly writing there is like a, a culture around it of brooding introspection and like you know excessive drinking and yeah. <laughs> sensitivity yes yeah it's the double-edged sword of the artist's life yeah no know? and I, I fit it very well and he was a really cool teacher I mean he he's like you know when there's all I mean I don't think this happens now but like that one hippie teacher who comes in and rattles the whole school and does things that are wildly unpopular that the kids love like this Robin Williams teacher. in Goodwill Hunt or Pretty. not Goodwill Hunting what's the movie <laughs> the Dead Poet Society yeah oh Captain my Captain yeah 100% the was, book up and stand on the desk <laughs> actually i'm gonna bookmark that standing on the desks thing so i have a yes. question for you about art school but <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah so i uh he encouraged me to become a writer and uh, so i like when i learned of interlochen later in life like in my 40s when i moved to traverse city that's when I found out about Interlochen, and I was so mad. I should have gone to that you school. You were like, who was, why were you not telling me? I was only, like, from, coming from Chicago. It was, like, so close. Yeah, no, like, Tons again. Of kids from Chicago. By the time I got to 
high school, like I said, it was just like, do I like your sweater or not? It had nothing. <laughs> nobody gave a shit about my art. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah. So you'll have to tell me because my only knowledge of like actually attending an art school is the TV show Fame. Oh, yeah. And the movie totally. Fame. Based on the LaGuardia <laughs> School for the Performing Arts. Yeah. So did like did. Like standing on the desk or the the tables and singing about lunch, like is that something that actually happens? Um, I will say that standing on tables and singing, um, both separately and together, are things that do happen. It did not happen so for me personally I because I was there as a writing major. In fact, although my life is now theater, I was a writer and still am, and that's so I'm not a performer. So. Um, I was not standing on tables. The writers were like the quiet ones, like trying to like, uh, you know, sort of be absorbed by the wallpaper, you know, hanging out <laughs> in the back. Like, don't look at us too much. Like shy, like the shy, quiet ones. So you were under the like table. Underneath the table. More afraid of the, the public display. Imagining yeah. my brother coming after you saying school. school. <laughs> we just wanted to quietly go to workshop and like look at each other's stories and like work on that. Yeah, we were not the performers, but the performing arts kids, because, you know, interlocking is music and dance and um, visual art and theater um, and writing. So the performers were the ones who were, you know, no shortage of just extemporaneous um, performance, breaking into song. Um, just at any time there could be, it was before flash bombs were flash bombs. You know, there might be some sort of breakout like Martha Graham situation happening in the middle of campus. You just, you didn't know. And you just had to like sort of be ready for anything. But the cafeteria was the place for that to happen. And because it was boarding school, it was three meals a day. So you had a lot of opportunity for that to, but I will say the beauty of interlocking for me beyond arts and all the high minded things that are true, but the real beauty is that when I got there, there were no clicks in the way I had understood school clicks. Mm -hmm. None. Like there were no clicks that were based around who had the prettiest hair or what, I don't know what makes people popular, but whatever it is, <laughs> who's meanest usually is right. it, who people are afraid of. <laughs> like that was not it. People had their groups of friends, but they, you know, which was fine, but nobody was excluding anybody else. And it does not matter how weird you were. And I mean this truly. Like, <laughs> you could be so weird. But there was a general mutual respect. Like, hey, everyone's here because they're really good at something. And they're really passionate about that thing. And whether that is playing the euphonium or, you know, modern dance or whether that is metalsmithing, um, there's, like, respect. You know, you might not hang out with them all the time, but there's no, like, picking on in bullying it was just like yeah they're cool and they might be sitting on the table playing that euphonium you don't know but everyone's just kind of like yeah all right just live and let live and it was the first time I'd experienced that and I almost didn't know like what to do with it like, that's oh, you're just being nice to me you don't even <laughs> oh my god cool yeah no I people listening cannot see me sitting here shaking my head slowly like, and that's, I don't understand of what you you speak no I'm thinking like yay I have yeah. another list of things I'm mad about for my parents <laughs> about my childhood it was a total it was just night and day oh, that sounds was, amazing oh my god nobody's talking about what people are wearing mm -hmm. beauty of uniform yeah really. is that's that awesome. nobody 
cared who had the Jerbo jeans aforementioned Jerbo jeans <laughs> yeah. not a thing so and then this led you to your career now as the executive director of Parallel 45 because I was friends with all the theater people <laughs> right. while being the quiet writer it just mm-hmm. in the dorm and the first people I met were theater majors and we became friends and stayed friends throughout so I fell in love with theater there from the audience cool so what what can you tell us about what you have on tap for Parallel 45 coming up Ooh, so we've been we have not had a regular season this past year. We have been sort of on a a restructuring year, which now we're very excited to say we um, will be going to a mostly summer focused season in 2019. We're still going to do stuff in the shoulder season, but what we're going to be doing in 19 in the summer is do a multi week uh, season in rotating rep. So there'll be multiple performances. You could go on a Thursday and see a musical, and you could come back the next night on Friday and see some hip industry straight play. And then the next day you could bring your kid to a matinee that hopefully will also be hip and fun, mm-hmm. yet child-friendly. Um, but same actors, same directors and designers. You hire you know, one company, and they're rotating throughout all these different shows. Oh, great. Yeah, Parallel yeah. 45 shows are my favorite shows. Any of these plays about school? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I've tried to think about it. We're going to announce our season pretty quickly. Uh, um, I, think you could, I think you could say one of them would be definitely have the schooled theme, like being schooled, being taught hard life lessons. Okay. And that would actually be the children's <laughs> show. <laughs> actually, funny Excellent. enough. Excellent. Get them while they're young. <laughs> get them while they're young. Yeah, you guys need to learn this lesson. It's true now, and it will be true throughout your life yes and hopefully don't take any of my early lessons you know (laughs) tell everyone what you're really thinking that's an admirable quality I think and there's a way to do that that's you know kind and respectful yet like yeah don't learn from an early age to to censor yeah exactly what you're thinking you can say what you think about that chili yeah say it proudly yeah i will say it again right here for anyone to listen i did not care for my fourth grade teacher's chili (laughs) (laughs) and so if you can't wait for um a play about being schooled in 2019 be sure to come to the hearsay main stage show on october 15th where we will have a lineup of storytellers telling true stories from their lives about their experiences with school. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com, or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Keep an eye out for when our podcast kicks back up in October 2018 with our first main stage show of Season 6. And if you live in the Traverse City area, don't forget that beginning on October 1st, The first Monday of each month will be open mic storytelling at the workshop. Have a great summer, and thanks for listening.